Today we're going to look at clarification of generational sins. Wow, what a topic. Clarification of generational sins. I don't know if you even have a grid for that. There's a brand of theology, like Carrie just shared uh, in her testimony, is the fact that sometimes people don't teach about it. They don't even believe it, so to speak. I find that, I find that uh, 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 particularly like puzzling because as I go through the New Testament, oh my goodness, I mean, there's a lot of getting free that Jesus did with these people. So I just don't understand why it's not even uh, thought about or taught. And then you can be in, in, in places where it can be overemphasized. It's like that's all they do. You know, they're looking for the next demon or the next curse or the next whatever. And, uh, and that's all their focus is. And to me, I grew up in a brand of theology. It was just kind of blank. You know, I don't know that we didn't believe it, but we didn't talk about it, didn't, didn't teach about it. So it wasn't until I was in my first pastorate that there was a missionary that came off of the field from Israel, 36 years on the, the, uh, as a missionary in Israel, and he came back. And, and uh, the Lord really schooled him in understanding generational sins and how they affect us today and so forth. And so he began to teach, and I began to examine my life and went through a process of just uh, getting free of any traps that the enemy would set uh, because, of the, uh, uh, because of my ancestors. Now today it's very popular to blame somebody else for your inability or your sins. That's very popular today. And that's not what you're going to hear in this message. Um, but we are affected by the sins of others, and I think we have to realize that. So let's just jump in this morning here, getting clarity on generational sins. The Apostle Paul quotes from... Romans, he actually brings out of the Old Testament from the book of Psalms, he brings out a direct quote from Psalms, and he says this, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. What's he saying? He's saying simply this, all sins are generational. Sin is generational. All of them. <laughs> Not just a few of them, all of them. Where did we get it from? We got it from our first parents, Adam and Eve. When they disobeyed God, what happened is that at that point, our nature changed. Or maybe the spiritual aspect of us got extracted out. And so when we were born, we're prone to disobey God. We're prone to sin, just like parents have a challenge with their uh, children, have a challenge with their parents at times. Even as a young child, they don't even know what they're doing. And they still disobey mom and dad. It's inbred in them. It's in the mix of who they are, their nature. And that's why we need to be born again. And so the Apostle Paul makes it clear that we've all fallen short. We all inherit something from our ancestors in a way that we are programmed, in a sense, to sin. Now, specifically, I want to talk about two categories of sin. Sin is just a general term, even though it does have uh, different meanings, uh, different, different words actually used in the New Testament. But specifically, I want to pull out two types of general sin, so to speak. One is iniquity, and the other is transgressions. Let's look at Scripture here a little bit. In Isaiah 53, which is a passage about what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. And it says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace 
was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And so we see in this passage where the writer understood that when Jesus came, he wasn't going to just die for sin in general. He was going to die for, for these uh, iniquities and transgressions, both together. When David was repenting before the Lord, he names, again, these two different types. He says, starts out in Psalm 32, 1 and 2, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not hold against them, and whose spirit there is no deceit. The, when I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity, you said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Isn't that good news? David said God was faithful to do what he promised. Now, what's the difference? Iniquity is the inward attitude. Transgressions are the outward action. One is the inward attitude. The other is the outward action. Iniquity is what's happening in our heart. Transgressions are what we're doing with our hand. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about both. He didn't talk about iniquity and transgression, but he talked about what was happening in the heart versus what they were doing outwardly. And he said they're both sin. For instance, he said, the scripture says you shall not murder. That would be the outward action. But he said, Jesus said, if you have hatred towards your brother in your heart, you're in trouble, you're in sin. You see the difference? One's a transgression, murder. The hatred is the iniquity, what's happening in our heart. He said, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if anyone lusts in their heart, you have committed adultery in your heart. What's Jesus saying? He said, what's happening inside of us registers in heaven as a problem, not just if we commit adultery or not. What's happening in our heart? He goes on to talk about shame. He says the fact that we, when we do something shameful, we like to hide it. We like to feel, oh, we're afraid of what God will do to us instead of getting free of shame and coming out into the open. The Pharisees, they taught it was just related to your actions. Whatever you do, whatever show you put on, that's acceptable to God. But Jesus says, no, it's not the show. It's not how you're praying in public. It's not what you're giving in the offering plate. It's not how many times you're showing up. It's the reason why you are doing those things. Now, those things are not bad in themselves. It's good to tithe. It's good to participate. It's good to serve and give. And yet, sometimes you get into places and even churches, that's their only emphasis. Well, you need to give more, or you need to serve more, or you need to show up more. No, the question is not why are you doing those things or not doing those things. What's in your heart? Why are you doing those things? And so Jesus is addressing those with the Pharisees. And understand that we're all guilty. We may not be guilty of the transgression, but we're all guilty of the iniquity. All of us carry things in our heart that, uh, that, that again, are not pleasing to God. The first couple that sinned, Adam and Eve, Eve committed an iniquity, and Adam committed a transgression. Eve saw in her heart 
that what the enemy was presenting her was good. And she reasoned in her mind, I can do this and it'll be okay. Adam willfully knew because God had commanded him. He willfully knew what he was doing when he participated. And so you have the first couple committing an iniquity and a transgression. And that's what we inherit as well. The Pharisees only taught about the outward action and they didn't teach about the heart. But when Jesus came, he says, I am just as much interested in what's going on in your heart, your attitude, your reason why, than I am the action that you're doing or not doing. When God's covenant laws are breached, a curse is released. Some people say, well, you can't have curses today. Well, why then would the Apostle Paul include in Galatians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, it reads, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, for it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So part of what Jesus did on the cross, when he hung there, everybody knew that anyone that was crucified was cursed. They had lived a cursed life. And so Jesus says, I'm hanging there so that your curses can be reversed, so that they can be broken, so that blessing can come in to your life. What is a curse? It's actually like a seed that is planted through disobedience. It starts very small. In fact, you don't even recognize the effects. But if you don't recognize, suddenly they begin to grow into something that is out of control and you think can't be managed or can't be broken. But it starts very small. If you look up the word curse, it's actually an, an active agent. It's a force. It's alive. It's working in your life because of disobedience. But when it's broken and repented of, then blessings get seeded into your life and you begin the fruit of being favored by God and walking in His favor. So the two are, again, they are opposites. Maybe you've bought a cleaner at the store and you wanted to know what is the, what's in this cleaner. Does it work? And so you go to the back and you turn it around and you go through the ingredients and all of a sudden you come to one that says active agent. <laughs> That's the one that does the work. The other stuff is kind of fillers around it, but that active agent is the one that actually does what you want it to do. And that's why you buy it and then you see if it works. Maybe it doesn't work, maybe it does. But in the same way, a curse is an active agent. There's other fillers around it but it's something that's active. The same way as a blessing. A blessing is an active agent. And the question is, maybe we have come under one, but, the, the, but we can reverse that curse and walk in the blessing. Now, the Bible states about seven different things that we can do that actually release curse into our life. And so the first one is uh, Cain and Abel. When Cain murdered his brother Abel, he was shedding innocent blood. 
That's what was happening. That's what was done. Abel didn't deserve to be killed. He didn't do anything to Cain nor to God. He actually did the right thing. And Cain was mad and angry about it. And so he murdered his brother. And as a result, God put a curse on Cain. A, Cain, a curse was released over Cain's life. Now I want to pause here a little bit and say that uh, we, can, we as a, a nation of the United States are under a curse because we're shedding innocent blood. It's called abortion. And you can be a Christian, I can be a Christian, and we can live under a curse. It, it'll be a challenge in times, sometimes personally, but even as a, a nation, the nations can actually have curses operating over them because of the laws that they approve that are opposed to God. Now, incidentally, Coming up this Wednesday, December the 1st, there's supposed to be a, a Supreme Court, uh, uh, they're, they're supposed to rule on something related to abortion that could be, again, we bumped up before this again, but it's time for the church to pray. There could be a time where this whole abortion law begins to unravel. It'll probably be sent to the states. That's probably the direction it's going. But if it's ever, what, what is actually going to happen it, at the federal or the national level, if it would be repealed or reversed, that would also reverse the curse that is over this nation. Wow, would that be amazing? The same as in marriage. When the law became, when it became illegal for same sex to marry each other, there was a curse that was actually released upon the land because it was opposed to God's order. Even biologically, it doesn't make sense. But it's opposed to God's order. And so as a result of that, a curse is released on the land. We're living under that. What would it be if we didn't live under that? Again, just throwing it out there. Uh, here's the next thing that the Bible says releases curses. Any type of sexual deviance outside of marriage, outside of covenant relationship, proper order and relationship, there's a curse. It happened to Noah. His sons did not recognize the sacredness of his body. And as a result of that, a curse was pronounced on one of the sons. Here's another one. Any, making anything into an idol. Deuteronomy talks about that. Anything that you set up that is in between you and God, whatever that is, it can be a person, it can be a thing, it can be, it can be a, a thought pattern, anything that's in between you and God as an idol... And God says, as a result of that, a curse will come upon your life. Here's the next thing that it mentions. That is uh, giving in to controlling spirits. Jezebel, probably heard of her name before, but she was one that controlled everybody through, through evil means. And as a result, there were curses that came upon people as a result of Jezebel controlling people through her means. Here's another one. Anybody displaying arrogance. Anyone displaying arrogance, Psalm 119.21 says a curse comes upon them when they display arrogance. And here's the last one, not tithing into the storehouse. Malachi chapter 3 says a curse comes upon you. In fact, apparently a lot of people weren't tithing because he says that there's a curse upon the whole nation just because of not being uh, honoring God with the tithe. Now, the thing that I want to pop into here next is Derek Prince was a, a great Bible teacher back in the 70s and 80s, and, and uh, he actually started Intercessors for America 
But he began to recognize as he prayed for people and studied and God directed him that there were certain things in people's lives that he automatically associated with a curse. Now I'm going to share those things and I'm not saying that if you identify with one of these things that there necessarily is a curse operating, but it could be. So don't dismiss it, that's what I'm saying. Here's what he said, that, uh, uh, that anybody with mental and emotional breakdowns, repeated mental and emotional breakdowns is a curse in operation someplace. Chronic sickness with multiple diagnosis, not just one, but multiple diagnosis, chronic sickness. Pregnancy issues of any kind, there's a curse connected with that. The breakdown and the breakup of marriages, whether they be divorce, whether it be strife, whether it be there's a curse in operation someplace. Continual financial insufficiency. You just never quite make it financially. There's a curse in operation. Accident prone, always having accidents. Everywhere you turn, there's a curse in operation. And finally, suicide or untimely death. There's a curse in operation. Again, those were his study, and you can go back and find scriptures to support those things, but again, just getting kind of a little more real of how we can be affected by curses that are in operation today. Now, the good news is this. Jesus died on the cross that our curses can be broken. He did that. That was a legal statement against any curses in operation. So that was the, he broke the trespass, the transgression at that point. So when did he break the iniquity? He broke the iniquity, which is the inward attitude, when he responded differently to those that were blasting him. It says in Peter and, 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 and James, it talks about the fact that people hurled insults at Jesus. And it said he opened up not his mouth. Or he responded differently from the attitude or the arrogance that was coming to him. He responded in the opposite spirit, a godlike spirit. And as a result, he broke that curse that was trying to get in his soul. So he broke the iniquity when he responded differently. He broke it legally. He broke the transgression on the cross when he died there. And so he took care of both for our sake and for our good. And so if there's any curse and operation in our lives, whether, whether it's something that, that again, uh, we've been handed and we're dealing with, or maybe it's something that is, is somebody's really blasting us, that it feels like that every time they do it, we get, our whole spirit gets dampened and we just get down and we get depressed, then that's, the, that's a, like an active agent that's come across, come upon you. And yet you respond in the opposite spirit. You, you figure out some way to bless them in a way they don't deserve. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote about in, in chapter 12 of Romans. He said, bless those who persecute you. Do good to those that hate you. What are you doing? You're actually breaking the curse of what they're trying to put on you. And you're actually walking in the blessing that God has for you. And so you break the iniquity. You break the heart of inside by responding in that different way. Wow, Jesus did it all, didn't he? He really did. Number two, who's responsible for what sin? Who's responsible for what sin? Again, we're wading into clarification of generational sins. 
Ezekiel 18.20 says this, The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. So the doctrine behind this is that when someone does something that is not pleasing to God, I suffer for it. Now here's the clarification that I want to make. Is that is you are affected by other people's sins. But you don't necessarily need to go through life suffering because they have sinned. You can be free. That's what Jesus died for. All of us uh, will be affected by other people's choices. That's true. But the fact is we don't need to, unless we're, we're choosing to suffer for, for something that is right and we know that we're doing it for God's sake, then that be it's a different reason for suffering. But just because they've done something wrong, they've done something outside of, of God's order, we don't need to go through life suffering as a result of that. They're responsible for their, their own actions and we're responsible for ours. The disciples understood this idea of generational sin when they passed a guy that was blind in John chapter 9 and they said, who sinned, Jesus, this man or his parents? Jesus said, neither. But this man is blind today and the glory of God is getting ready to be revealed. He's going to see for the first time. Wow. On another occasion, there was a young boy that had a demon and and the disciples were trying to cast out this demon, and they just couldn't get it to work. I mean, they just couldn't get it uh, to cooperate. That's a better term. <laughs> they couldn't get it to cooperate. So they brought the boy to Jesus. And the first question Jesus asked was, how long has he been in this condition? And his father said, from birth. Again, now I doubt if the blind man or the child went to some ritual or had something that they participated in personally to cause that to happen. Something generationally came through and caused them to have this condition. They were affected by somebody else's sin. Jesus says it wasn't that man or his parents. Maybe it was his grandparents that did something. And again, we'll come to that understanding here in a little bit. And so the good news is that Jesus set them free. Here's a couple of points about that. You are responsible for your own sins. All right? You're responsible for your own. Again, reading a little bit more in Ezekiel 18 through 20. But his father will die for his own, own sin because he, he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong among his people. You ask, why does the son not share in the guilt of the father? Since the son has done what is just, right, and has been careful to keep all of my decrees, he will surely live. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Ezekiel lays it right out there for us to understand that we could, uh, our, our, our parents or grandparents or uncle and aunt, somebody could have done something. They're responsible for what they did we're responsible for how we respond to them, to God and to them. The second thing I, I mentioned there is we're affected, we are affected by other sins. Deuteronomy 8, 10 through 12 says this, You shall not make for yourselves 
an image in any form in heaven above or on earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. What is God talking about it then? Well, three and four generations are alive at one time. It's generational. Everybody's affecting everybody else. Now, the, the, the interesting thing about this verse is the context is idol worship, those that hate me. So it's actually talking about people that hate God and that they have set up an idol in their heart. It says we shouldn't do that, that if we would follow suit after them, then God would release his punishment upon three and four generations, and then it stop. But then look at the end. He says, to those that love me, I will bless a thousand generations. Wow. <laughs> it doesn't even compare, does it? Three and four generations of punishment versus a thousand generations of blessing? Wow, that's God. He is amazing. That's an amazing deal. I want to keep loving God. Now, the other interesting thing here is that when it talks about the, 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 the sin of the parents, that word there is iniquity, not trespass. And so it says you better be careful that you don't pass on to the next generation your attitudes of the heart that are wrong. Pass along the right heart attitudes towards God. And so we see here in, through this passage that we are affected by other people's sins, but again, we don't need to suffer as a result of that. God releases, he wants, he's a jealous God, and so he wants to correct us and bring us back into relationship. So we're not punished for the sins of others. They receive their own punishment, but again, we can be affected by them. Have you ever heard of the term a dry drunk? If you've not been around alcoholics, you probably wouldn't understand that, but what it essentially means is the person is not drinking, but they've not changed in any other way. They've not changed their attitude. They've not changed their outlook. They've not changed uh, their mouth. They haven't changed uh, the way they spend their time. It's all the same. The only one component is that they're just not drinking. And again, God would say, I'm glad that you're not drinking, but I'm also concerned about how you think and how you talk and how you spend your time and how you lead your family. And so what happens is, according to the Pharisees, they would say, well, that's okay. You're cool. God says, no, I want the whole person. I want, I want you to be truly, truly saved through and through. Here's another one. Wow, we're jumping into some um, alligators this morning. I like this. We all share in societal sin. We all share in societal sin. Daniel 9 and Nehemiah 1, when they prayed, they said, we have sinned. 
They didn't say those rotten leaders have sinned and led us astray. They didn't say those terrible people, they were the ones that led us astray. And apart from you, I was righteous the whole time, God. No. They said, we have sinned. They owned societal mistakes and sinned as one of theirs. And in the same way, we contribute to societal sin when we don't do two things when we don't live the true gospel. We don't live the true gospel. We contribute to societal sins. And secondly, is that, that when, when we don't stand up for what is right, not stand up to get our rights, that's what's popular in the political arena. Let's stand up to get our rights. No, people in Scripture stood up because it was right. Daniel stood up because it was right. I'm praying three times a day. That's what I do. No, I don't, I don't care if the government mandate says I can't pray anymore. I'm still going to pray. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Again, same situation. They, were, they, were in, they said, you know what? Throw us in the fiery furnace. That's okay with us. Our God can save us. And even if he doesn't, I'm not going to bow to your God. They had government mandates on them. Esther. Government mandates. The whole Jewish nation is going to be wiped out. She didn't stand up because to get her rights. She stood up because it was right. And she sought the Lord. And so as we as believers in Christ, if we don't, again, live the true gospel and stand up for what is right, then we contribute to societal sin. We need to be the voice that God has put us in with the people he's called us to influence. And everybody has different levels of of how that works. Somebody says that you can't legislate morality. Well, sure you can. But you could never legislate the change of a heart. For instance, you can legislate there'll be no more alcohol sold in Frederick County and Winchester. You probably have less people drinking. Now they might go to West Virginia or Warren County or wherever they could get it and bring it back. But sometimes the flesh goes, ah, oh, I just won't do it. When you make something that is morally destructive, illegal, you have less people participating. Again, you're legislating morality, but you can never change a heart. I mean, that's been demonstrated through Islamic countries that we would support, biblically, a lot of the laws that they have morality-wise. But what happened when democracy came in and those Islamic laws were lifted, what happened in people's hearts? People's hearts weren't changed. It was only the law that was keeping them in order. And once the law was removed, they, they had at it. And they did whatever they wanted to because their heart wasn't changed. So a law can actually legislate morality for the good of the people, but a law can never change a heart. Only Jesus can. So we need both. Sometimes um, I see Christians today as giving in too soon. We have mandates that come, and instead of trusting on the timing of the Lord, sometimes we give in too soon. That's the, th uh, the observation I had about Joseph and Daniel and, and, and Esther, and they... They, they, were, they were in a pickle, but they didn't panic. And they kept doing what was right, 
And they waited on the vindication of the Lord. And they already decided that if the Lord didn't intervene, they were going to take it on the chin. And that was okay with them because they were doing it in the right heart for the right reason. But they waited on the vindication of the Lord. And they said, either God's going to save me or I'll take it on the chin. Either way is okay with me because I just want to glorify God. And sometimes I see us giving up too soon. And we need some stamina to stand. That's why I appreciate Pastor Chris's messages. Wow, when was that? Back in October? His messages on standing were powerful. And I've heard many of you comment about those, the need to stand in our day and time. Number three, walking into uh, freedom from generational traps. Here we go. Turn with me to, turn with me to Psalms chapter 32. Psalms 32. Davis, uh, David gave us, gives us a, uh, uh, just a glimpse into how he worked through challenging moments in his life when he confessed and, and how the Lord led him. And so I just want to use this as a kind of a, a, a grid for us to walk through how that we find freedom. Psalm 32. Again, he starts out that blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sins the Lord does not count against him and whose spirit there is no deceit. The first thing that I want to point out if you want to walk into generational blessings, then out of the trappings that the enemy sets for us generationally is to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. David knew that he was forgiven because God forgave him. He did what he was required. And so when he received Jesus as Lord, he knew, I am forgiven. I'm forgiven of my iniquity and I'm forgiven of my transgression. Both are absolved because that's the kind of God he is. The second thing that David did is repent of any revealed sin. Repent of any revealed sin. Look at verse 5. He says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Hallelujah. Isn't that good news? David said, I'm repenting of that which is opposed to you. And therefore you are setting me Free. The third thing that David, David did in his journey to freedom is that he renounced any ungodly attitude or action. He renounced. He pushed it away. He, in a sense, resisted. And that's something that we as American Christians sometimes aren't good at, resisting. We think we just have to give in. If, if we're pressured, we have to give in. And the Bible speaks about resisting. Let's look at what David says here. He says in verse 6, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and give me surround sound. Hallelujah. Surround me with songs of deliverance. Isn't that good news? So David said, when the mighty waters try to come up to overtake me, I'll be able to resist them because I'm free. God has set me free. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. He's my hiding place. He's the one that I want to run and go to. The next one is another thing that I think we neglect. That is our way towards freedom of any generational trappings. And that is to live a consecrated lifestyle unto the Lord. 
Yeah, I've known people that, you know, they go to conferences and they have an incredible experience with God, just life transforming, and then they come back and they begin work, and, and, and they're, like, they're like, you know, all of that incredible experience is just gone. They're back in the doldrums again. They're back with the same attitudes and the same grind. Man, if you have an incredible counter with God, take and figure out how to take that and bring it with you to work or bring it into your household or bring it into your life. Integrate it in. If it was that good on a weekend, then figure out how to bring it into your life. Don't compartmentalize. David says this. Boy, this is really, really great. Verse 8. He says, I will, this is God talking to David, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like a horse or a mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. He said, don't be people that is always looking at the law, whether it's permissible to do. Live in such a way as your love towards God that you're not even concerned with the law, the right or wrong of it, but your love towards God is so great and so overwhelming that you don't even pay attention what the law is because you're living way above it because you're in love with Him and He's in love with you. And so, if somebody has to put a bit in our mouth, then that means that we're living by the law. No, let's, that's not what we're called to live by. We're called to live above or beyond the law, so to speak. Not that the law disappears. The law is an, an incredible for us. It's like if you were, a, a, say, a steel worker on a bridge, and you're about 60 feet up in the air working on the bridge, there would be a net like 30 feet underneath of you, right? You would hope that you would never, never have to use the net. And you're working in freedom up on the bridge. But should you trip and fall and do something, the net will catch you. And that's what the law says. The law says, maybe you don't have the right attitude right now, or maybe you're really angry about something, or maybe something is eaten in your heart. Well, until you get that worked out, don't do this. Because you'll really regret. You'll, you'll, you'll throw a curse in your life if you do this. So the law kind of catches us if we fall down. Does that make sense? And so that's how we're supposed to live in that way. David says, I will instruct you in the way that you go. Let's see what's under the curtain. Ho, not a rabbit. A bunch of empty boxes. These boxes represent things that are in front of our life and they may have been done or committed by our ancestry and so David says that God here July 23rd is my birthday and so I start walking forward in life and as I walk forward in life I, I encounter some tough times and so I look to my my, maybe my parents or maybe a, an uncle or maybe a grandfather. And I begin to say, how did they make it through that tough time? But instead of a godly way, they chose to operate in an ungodly way. And so I, in a sense, step into that box. I'm going to fall over here in a minute. I step into that box, and it boxes me in. And so I was like, well, the way that you cope with that is you just do that. 
That's the, way, that's the way you do it. Not realizing you can step out of that box. And then there's another one that you can step into. And, and then there's another one up ahead. Again, you move a little bit, but then you end up stepping. And sometimes when you step into the box, it's like over your head and it blinds you and you can't see anything else. You can't even see God at work because you stepped into that box. Some of them are small. Some of them are not so small. Some of them are bigger. But David says this. He says, whatever way that you go, God will instruct you. He will counsel you that when some of your ancestors fell into that trap, you won't need to. You'll walk around that trap. And you'll recognize, you know, I don't need to fall into that trap. I can, I can walk around that trap and I can avoid it. It's there. It's visiting me to step in to that trap, but I'm not going to because God has better plans for me. And so David instructs us how to navigate through life. And then finally, the last one is to be aware of ungodly temptations. He says in verse 10, Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts him. Have you ever been around ungodly people? They oftentimes have a lot of problems. And they, their problems don't go away. We as believers in Christ have problems too. But our problems go away. Because Jesus takes them away. And we want him to take him away. And we ask for him to take them away. And we repent when we mess up. And we resist when they try to overtake us. And we consecrate our life daily. And we say, Lord, lead me in the everlasting way. Help me navigate those traps that my ancestors fell into that I don't want to go there. Help me navigate around them. Give me understanding. Give me counsel. Give me wisdom in order to be free. How do we understand generational sins? Which type? Iniquity or transgression? Jesus said our iniquities, our attitudes are just as sinful as our actions. We're responsible for us. It's very popular in the world to blame others. We're responsible for us. That's what the Word says. Can we be effect affected by other people's sins? Yes. But we don't need to suffer for other people's sins. We can live free. We truly can. We can live free. That's what Jesus died for in the cross. We actually share in societal sins if we don't live the gospel and stand up for what is right. I'm debating on saying something. <laughs> Say it. Now you guys are edging me on. I, I happened to be watching a, uh, it was a series 
that had to do with Nazi Germany. And I was just reminded of how that same spirit that targeted the Jews, that same spirit is now awakened today in America through critical race theory. And the target is a white male. The same as the Jews were targeted, that same spirit is targeting white males today. And it's the exact same demonic spirit. So, you know, we need to live the gospel. We need to stand up for what is right. We need to respond in the opposite spirit. We need to recognize that Jesus died on the cross so that we could be free. Amen? Amen. Stand with me. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to lead us in a prayer here in a little bit. But before I do, I just want to take some time just to come before the Lord and just invite Him to search your heart. David ended Psalm 139 and he said, Search my heart, O God, and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That's a great prayer to pray. Not just in church, but before you go to bed. Search me, O God. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the everlasting. Maybe God will reveal an iniquity that has grown in your heart like a seed. An attitude, a bitterness, a doubt, an unbelief. That God is not who he, is, he says He is or He can't do what He says He can do. Maybe that iniquity has crept into your heart. And the Holy Spirit says, I want to remove that from you. But you've got to partner with me. You've got to recognize it. You've got to repent of it. You've got to resist it. And then you have to decide to live a consecrated life. Maybe you recognize that you've transgressed God's law. You've stepped over the boundaries. And it's becoming clear to you through today's message. Jesus doesn't treat iniquities and transgressions differently. Sometimes we do because we can only see the transgressions. But we can certainly hear the iniquities out of people's mouths so you know we sang earlier Lord I surrender it's part of it Lord I surrender I'm not asking for perfection only Jesus is perfect but I am asking you what direction are you going not perfection direction Holy Spirit, you are such a gracious God, punishing to the third and fourth generation, but showing love to a thousand generations. God, you're amazing. Wow. Lord, you love when your children come 
and say, Papa, Father, I messed up. I let this seed in my heart come take it from me that I might be free and live a life of freedom. Let's just ask the Lord to come and show us if there's anything right now anybody in the house that said, you know what, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. I've been thinking about it for a while. This morning's the time I want to I want to just surrender my life to Jesus. Anybody, anybody in that place, condition, just lift up your hand. You're lifting up your hand to the Lord. Anybody in this place that said, I want to surrender to Jesus. All right, thank you. Let's pray this prayer together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus who died on the cross, that I might be free. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me. Reveal to me any way I've been affected by my ancestors, either attitudes or actions. confess those before you now I ask for your forgiveness come and give me resistance power to reject making the same mistakes as my forefathers I desire to live a consecrated life before you I choose now to love the Lord my God with all of my heart with all of my soul, all of my mind, and all of my strength, and to love my neighbor as Jesus has loved me. Thank you for complete freedom today. In Jesus' name, amen.